morning. I'd like you to turn with, your, with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Have you ever been criticized? I'm sure you have. If you haven't been criticized, then you've probably never risked anything, never accomplished anything, never even attempted anything. People who move forward, people who forge ahead, people who are creative, people who make a difference get criticized. It just comes with the territory. In fact, it seems a part of human nature to tear down those who stand up. It happens in politics. It happens in entertainment. It happens in sports. Unfortunately, that principle makes its way into the church. And Christians who move ahead for God, who use their gifts, who take some risks, often get torn down and criticized. It's like the old saying, if you put your neck on the line, somebody will try to cut it off. My dad used to tell me, whenever somebody's being criticized, I know they're doing something for God. People will question your motives. They will question your methods. They will even question your character. And the results are often devastating. Many a Christian has been broadsided and knocked off the road and sometimes never fully recovers from criticism. I've seen Christians move ahead for God and then get criticized and often find them playing it safe and not taking risks anymore and keeping a low profile. They're like the guy in the war in the foxhole who won't even stick his head up. He's just trying to take no risks at all. And two of the things that make this kind of criticism so damaging is, number one, it doesn't come from your enemies. It comes from others in the Christian community. It comes from those who call themselves your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a term that came out of, I first heard it out of the the war in the Middle East. And that was somebody being killed by friendly fire. Sounds pretty good. You know, if you got to go, why not friendly fire? But when you break it down, what is friendly fire? That just means your comrade shot you in the back. And unfortunately, that terminology fits in the church because many a Christian has been seriously wounded by friendly fire, by friendly criticism. Those who ought to build him up, tear him down. Second problem with this kind of thing is it doesn't come to you directly. If criticism comes to you directly, lovingly, somebody comes to you and says, 
you got a blind spot, you got an issue in your life, that's proper. That's constructive criticism. I welcome that. You should welcome that as a Christian. That's loving when a brother comes and says, you got an issue in your life, I'd like to deal with it. But the problem with this kind of criticism is it doesn't take that path. It's always talking about you to somebody else. It's always second hand. It's always heard by everyone else before it's heard by you. I had someone come to me recently and said, you've got to know that people are gossiping about you. I said, no, I don't have to know. Because that's the nature of gossip. They don't come to me. They go talk to somebody else. You're the last one to hear about what people are saying about you because it is gossip. And the problem with that is if you want to try to address it, you don't even know where it is. It's already poisoned and it's spread and it's spread and you can't really even defend yourself when you're criticized this way. If you've ever experienced that, you don't have to feel alone. You're in good company because Paul got more than his share of unwarranted criticism. And even as he writes 2 Corinthians, he's aware of criticism that is floating around the church at Corinth concerning him, and it's no light criticism. His integrity is being questioned. It's being said that he operates in the flesh, and he can't be trusted. And as we'll discover later in 2 Corinthians, the real source of this criticism was false teachers who wanted to attack Paul's integrity so that they could usurp his authority. I've had people come to join this church and they've told me, another pastor told me not to come to this church because A, B, C. And I always say to them, thank you for telling me that because I would like to address those issues. They were not true. But another pastor is saying, don't go to that church because of this gossip. That's what was happening in this church. There were those who wanted to usurp Paul's authority, and so they were tearing away at him and criticizing his integrity. The question is, how do you respond to that kind of criticism? Do you fold your tent? Do you quit? Do you fight back? Do you strike back? How do you deal with this kind of criticism? What I want us to see this morning is the way Paul deals with this kind of criticism. And in verses From chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 4, he points out four factors that confirm his integrity. When you're under criticism, you can't necessarily defend yourself to everyone. But you can rest in these four areas. And these four areas are his conscience, his intentions, his word, and his motives. And Paul is going to say, in all four of those areas, I am pure. I have a pure conscience, I have pure intentions, I have a pure word, and I have pure motives. Now let's look at those this morning. First of all, he talks about my conscience in verses 12 to 14. Notice verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience 
that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Paul points, first of all, to the testimony of his conscience. Now, everybody has a conscience. You have a conscience whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. The conscience is kind of a built-in monitor, a built-in governor. It's like a a, a built-in thermometer, a moral thermometer. It distinguishes what is right and what is wrong. It either commends what you do or it condemns what you do. Now, it's important to understand that the conscience is not infallible. Your conscience can be operating wrongly. The Bible says you can have an evil conscience or a defiled conscience. You can have a thermometer that's 20 degrees off. It's not registering right. Your conscience can be that way. The Bible says you can have a seared conscience. That means calloused. You have ignored your conscience so much that it is not operating in a sensitive fashion anymore. The Bible says you can have a weak conscience that is sensitive about things that aren't really wrong. And so the conscience is not infallible. But when the conscience is working right, the Bible says it is a good conscience and a clear conscience. That is, it is doing what it is supposed to do. And here Paul appeals to his conscience. He says, my critics are saying negative things, but when I look to my conscience, my conscience is affirming me. Notice, my conscience is giving me confidence. Now, what was his conscience testifying about? Three things. Number one, he says, that I have conducted myself in holiness. Holiness means to be set apart from sin. When everybody else is criticizing me, my conscience is not filled with guilt. My conscience is confirming me. My conscience is giving me confidence that I'm doing the right thing, that I have conducted myself toward you in holiness, not in sin. Secondly, he says, in godly sincerity. That word sincere sincere means literally unmixed, containing no substances, pure, honest. Paul says, I have dealt with you in sincerity, honestly. Not only that, he says, in godly sincerity. Not just on a human level have I been sincere, but in a godly way I have been sincere. Pure and honest in the sight of God. Now, how do you get godly sincerity? There's a great verse in Hebrews 4.12. It says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It says it, it divides and it cuts and it says all those things. And then in the next verse it says, in order that we might be open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do. When you are honest with the Word of God, the Word of God cuts you. It carves you open. It lays you open. And when you allow it to do what it's meant to do, it makes you honest and sincere before God. You get real with God. And when you're real with God, you have godly sincerity. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 
2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. That's godly sincerity. Paul says, when I operate, I'm not just concerned about what other people think because often other people are going to misinterpret what I'm doing and they're going to criticize me. What I'm concerned about is being honest and open and sincere before God because he examines my heart. And then thirdly, he says, in the grace of God. What is grace? Unmerited favor. Grace is what God did for you in Jesus Christ that you could never do for yourself. And Paul says, I operate toward you in the grace of God. Now, how do you operate toward another human being in the grace of God? Well, look at a verse with me. Turn over in 2 Corinthians to chapter 8 and verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's grace. Jesus was rich. He became poor so that you might become rich. That's grace. So how do you show it in your life toward other people? Look at the first two verses of chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. How do you see the grace of God in the life of a human being? They give even what they don't have to give. They make sacrifices to meet the needs of other people. That's what God did for you in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants you to do toward other people as well. And that's not natural. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, here in verse 12, he says, he contrasts it with fleshly wisdom. Fleshly wisdom says you ought to deal with people in shrewdness. You ought to deal with people in self-interest, in self-exaltation. You ought to use people for your gain. But the grace of God says you ought to spend yourself for the benefit of other people. And so Paul says, my conscience testifies that I have conducted myself in holiness, in godly sincerity, and in the grace of God. When you can say that, criticism isn't going to hurt you. And then Paul shows how this sincerity carried itself over into his letters. Look at verse 13. For we write nothing else to you than what what you read and understand. He's obviously been accused of being insincere in his letter writing. Somebody's saying, well, he writes this, but he really means that. And so Paul says... What I write is what I mean. There's no innuendos, there's no overtures, there's no pretense. I'm being straight 
forward with you because I want you to understand. And what does he want them to understand? Look at the rest of verse 13. I hope you will understand until the end, or I hope you will understand completely, just as you have also partially understood that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Paul says, what I write is what I mean. And what I want you to understand completely is what you've already understood partially. And what is that? That you matter more to me than anything else in this world. I hope you realize that the most important thing in this world is people. I trust that you are investing. He's saying when Jesus comes back, the thing that's really going to matter is the people that I've invested my life in for Christ. Those that I've led to Christ, those that I have discipled, those that I have encouraged, those that I have built up, that's what will matter. My greatest joy when Jesus comes back will be to look into somebody else's eyes and say, I had an impact on this person's life. God used me to help bring this person to where they are today. That's the biggest deal. And Paul says, my letters aren't complicated. I just want you to know that what matters when Jesus comes back is that you care about me and I care about you. I've invested in you, you've invested in me. That's what matters. When I was a young father, we decided we were going to have a family night. Family night was Thursday night. In family night, we would get together as a family and do something. As a fan, nobody could go anywhere else on Thursday night. It was family night. It was designed to create unity and, uh, you know, build us closer as a family, and it was a wonderful concept. I remember one Thursday night early on, we decided that we would play Monopoly. So we got out the Monopoly board, and and, uh, I'm a very competitive person. So we were playing Monopoly, and... uh, Pretty soon, I got Broadway and Park Place and some of the main streets and started building up my hotels and started winning the game. And as I was winning the game, I was prone to taunt (laughs) a little bit, and i.e., I became a jerk. Gradually, as I beat my young boys at Monopoly, they would go off to bed. At the end of the game, I had won, and my family hated me. (laughs) And I remember sitting there at the table and putting up the Monopoly game, and a lesson struck me, and that was, everything goes back in the box except people. You can win at games and lose at life because what matters in life is people. And Paul's saying, my letters aren't complicated. It just boils down to this. You matter to me, and I want to matter to you. So 
So in the midst of criticism, Paul says, look at my conscience. It's pure. Second, he mentions my intentions in verses 15 to 17. Notice verse 15. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Now, Paul says, my first plan was, he's in Ephesus, my first plan was to come straight across the sea to you in Corinth. Then I was going to go north to Macedonia, take care of business up there, come back, see you a second time, and then go on to Jerusalem. That was his first plan. He later changed that plan because in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he tells them he's in Ephesus. Instead of coming directly to them, he's now going to go to Macedonia first, then come down to them so he can spend a longer time with them, and then go on to Jerusalem. As a result of changing his plans, notice what he says in verse 17. Therefore... I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul made one plan, then he changed it to another plan, and his critics said, he's vacillating. You can't trust him. He's fickle. He's operating in the flesh. You know, some people have the will of God all figured out for you. And if you make a plan and you change your plan, they're going to say, well, you can't be walking in the Spirit because if you were, you wouldn't change your plan. We've made plans here as a church. I told you that we would have two services this fall. We changed our mind. We didn't change our mind. We delayed the plan. You might say, well, you're, you're obviously operating in the flesh because you didn't do what you said you were going to do. Can you make a plan and change a plan? Well, Paul did. Paul said, I'm coming to you. No, wait. I'm going to come to you later. Was he operating in the flesh? Notice what he says in verse 15. In this confidence. What confidence? The confidence of his conscience. I came to you. And so his conscience was pure and his intentions were pure. And so in the midst of this criticism, Paul says, look at my intentions. They're pure. Third area. My word in verses 18 to 22. Out of this change of plans, the critics said of Paul, he says yes and no at the same time. You can't trust his word about anything. And so not only can you not trust him when he makes plans, you can't even trust his message. And so Paul uses this to defend his message because his message is the word of God. Look at verse 18. But as God is faithful... Our word to you is not yes 
and know. As faithful as is the word of God, so also is our word to you because our word to you is the word of God. And it's not yes and no at the same time. It is only yes. And he goes through these verses, verses 19 to 22, to defend that by saying it's yes because of Christ, it's yes because of God, and it's yes because of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here because we already spent two messages on these few verses. And if you didn't get that, then you can get the CD. But I just want to highlight what he's saying here. First of all, he says it's yes because of Christ in verses 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. What did we preach? We preached Christ Jesus. And all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. He makes it yes. And then it's yes because of God in verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. We preached the message of the gospel and God confirmed that message by establishing you with us in Christ. And then thirdly, It's yes because of the Holy Spirit in verse 22, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. We preached the gospel. What happened? It was confirmed by the Holy Spirit who sealed you so that nobody can tamper with you and is the down payment that what God hasn't come through with yet, he will come through with because of the Spirit of God. And so Christ makes the gospel, yes. God makes the gospel, yes. The Holy Spirit makes the gospel, yes. It is trustworthy. It is pure. And so in the midst of criticism, Paul says, look at my word. I am bringing you the word of God. It's pure. And then fourthly, he points to my motives. In verse 23 of chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 4. And here he points to three motives why he did not come to them in the plan he made originally. The first motive is to spare them sorrow in verses 23 and 24. Notice verse 23. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Paul originally said, I'm coming straight over to Corinth. And one of the reasons he changed his mind was to spare them. Because he's thinking, if I come straight over to Corinth, I'm going to have to discipline you guys. And I don't want to do that. So instead, he sends the letter, 1 Corinthians. Then he goes up to Macedonia, delays his trip, so that when he gets to Corinth, he's hoping that having received 1 Corinthians, they will respond to that exhortation, they will repent, and he won't have to discipline them when he comes. And so he says, it's to spare you. When I was a young father, I would also do some things right. And sometimes I would hear my boys, they'd be in the room, it sounded like they were having tag team wrestling in there. And I could hear things breaking or almost breaking or creaking. And they were, so I would say to them, in five seconds, I'm coming in that room. 
Now, why did I announce that I was coming? Because I wanted to give them time to repent. I wanted to give them a chance to stop. In five seconds, I'm coming in there. When I came in, they looked, you know, they were all, everything was okay when I got there. To spare them, I announced it. Paul says, to spare you, I didn't come directly. I sent you the letter, 1 Corinthians. Then I went up to Macedonia and came down because I didn't want to have to confront you. And then look at verse 24. It's a great verse. He kind of softens this. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. Now, that's a great verse. If we had more time, I would, I would spend a lot of time on this verse because it really talks about how leadership works with people. You don't lord it over somebody's faith. You can't dictate faith in somebody else. And so he softens the analogy here, and he says, we're workers with you for your joy. We're all in this work together. We are co-workers in the community of God. And then there's a second reason in his motives, and that is to spare Paul sorrow. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. Paul says, I did it for your sake, but hey, selfishly, I did it for my own sake. Why was it for Paul's sake? Look at verse 2. For if I cause you sorrow... Who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? I, want to, I don't want to come over there and make you sad because if I make you sad, who's going to make me happy? And then look at verse 3. This is the very thing I wrote you so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. He says, this is what I wrote. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 21, he says, shall I come with a rod or in gentleness? He writes them a letter, gives them the exhortations, and says, if you'll do what I say, then I won't have to bring a rod when I come. I can come in gentleness. And Paul says, because of that, I get joy in coming and seeing that God has worked in your life. And then there's a third factor in his motives, and that is he did it out of love. And for that, look at verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Did you know that 1 Corinthians was a love letter? Paul says, when I wrote it, there wasn't just ink on the page, there were tears on the page because he wrote it with that kind of heart for them. It wasn't written flippantly. It was written out of a heavy heart, a concerned heart. It was with tears running down his face that he wrote those exhortations to them. And he says he did it not to make them sorrowful, but to demonstrate his love. How can a letter of reproof be a love letter? Proverbs 9.8 says, Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
See, what Paul's doing here is he's handling criticism the proper way. He confronted them with the issues that they had in their life. He lovingly, caringly came to them, not to somebody else, came to them and said, here's what needs to happen in your life. Here's what you need to change. I love you enough to tell you that you need to repent in this area. You see, that's love. Criticism, gossip, is when you take that same information and you go somewhere else and you tell somebody else instead of going to the person who needs to hear it. And Paul shows us a great pattern here. Because most of the time, people aren't going to come to you. They're going to go to somebody else. And when they do, he says you need to check your conscience, check your intentions, check your word, check your motives. And when you can say, I've got a pure conscience, I've got pure intentions, my word is pure, my motives are pure, you can handle the criticism that comes your way. Because you can know that whatever people are saying about you, God who examines your heart is pleased. I'm going to have the praise team come back. We're going to close. And as you reflect on the message this morning, I want you to just say, God, lay me open and bare before you. Examine my heart. Make sure that I can say with the Apostle Paul, I'm pure in these areas. And if not, then I need to confess some things to you. Or maybe you're a person who typically gossips rather than confronts people. Maybe you need to confess that to the Lord. Say, I've been guilty of shooting arrows in the back of my Christian brothers. And I need to confess that, and I need to go to that person, and I need to correct that, and I need to become the person who lovingly goes to somebody rather than goes elsewhere with that information. Whatever God's speaking to you today, listen to him and respond as we close. Let's stand as we close.